Hello and welcome to the Word with Webb podcast. I'm Eric and I'm here with Pastor Richard Webb. In this show, we get the chance to hear from Pastor Richard on a variety of biblical topics. And in today's show, we'll be discussing the, the gospel. How are you doing today, Richard? Doing not too bad. The sun's a little bit out and, and um, I'm really excited to tackle this topic. Yeah, I'm excited too. So last time we talked about the Trinity and kind of dipped our toe a little bit into the gospel. Yeah. Um, what is it that you remember about that conversation and why why is this a good next step in where we're going with just all things uh, discussing the Bible? Um, I would say, first of all, when, when, when Jews think of God, they always think of God in terms of his interaction with them. So God is the sum of all the stories with his people. And and so the definition of God is wrapped up in the story of God, and and so when we think of the Trinity, um, however the Jews conceive of God, it was always for something, uh, and this is really important. Um, in our worldview, uh, we tend to think of things in the world of forms, or another way of, of matter. In other words. Um, you know, we'll look at a cup, and and we could talk about its purpose and, and all that, but it's a cup, and it just sits there. And even if it's not being used for anything, it's a cup. Where um, in the Hebrew worldview, um, you didn't talk about anything apart from its function. Its identity was wrapped up in its purpose and its role. So if we talk about the Word of God, we well, why would we even talk about that? Well, because when God talks, stuff happens. Hmm. Uh, or the Spirit of God. Well, why, why would we talk about God as Spirit? Well, because life happens when God's Spirit shows up. Um, also, um, when God's Spirit's on someone, um, things start changing, uh, and, and that's the essence of, of the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. Um, you know, and, and we could continue on and on um, when they talk about God as wisdom. Um, then we, we talk about that if, if, if we live within God's wisdom, uh, we live in a way of life that produces life, and anything outside of God's wisdom is folly. And so, in that way, God's identity, the various ways of describing God, or you could say the various ways God shows up, each one of them has a unique purpose. Um, and, and and while they all flow together, they move the story forward. So, uh, for the first followers of Jesus who are creating the beginnings of what we call Trinitarian thought, um, they weren't thinking of solving a static philosophical problem. They were thinking about the ways God had encountered, encountered them, and first and foremost, in, in Jesus. Okay, who is this guy? And, 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 and they were trying to solve his claims and make sense of his actions, especially the resurrection. Um, so that's how I think that fits in. And then of course that immediately goes to, okay, so the identity of God is wrapped up in the story of Jesus. Well, what are the main terms? I mean, every one of those stories, if you read them, the first four stories are called gospel. Okay. What on earth? Why would you put that title on these four stories? Uh, and then we go from there. So yeah, gospel is tied up into the identity of Jesus, or maybe better put, the identity of Jesus is being summarized as gospel. Okay. So it, yeah, gospel is one of those words that you know we use in the church a lot. Mm -hmm. But if you're not in the church, you're probably not mm -hmm. using that word a lot. Oh, yeah, so yeah. where where does it come from? What is it? Um, I think a lot of people know that it means good news, but maybe that's the extent of it. But mm -hmm. like, where does this word gospel come from originally? Well, this is fascinating. Um, I'm going to start with just the English origins. Um, is the word gospel um, is two old, well, two words. One is still modern, God, 
But the other one is um, the word uh, spell also meant story at one time. So it, the, it, the original word was God's spell or, or God's spell as the play. Um, and so the English word means God's story, which I find very fascinating. This is a very Jewish way of thinking. Um, now, the, the word that the Bible uses in both the Old and New Testament, um, while they're two separate languages, they use the same words, good news. And, and I just kind of did a little um, digging around. We already know that the phrase good news is assigned to the title of the four stories of Jesus. It's, the authors regarded them as good news. Well, let's, let's break that down. Just when any Greek or Roman would think of that phrase, what would they think of? Mm-hmm. And, and I just wrote down something here is um, the word literally means public news that's good that changes everything for a group of people. So whoever uses it, whether they're Christian, Jew, or Roman, or Greek, if they hear the phrase good news, and in Greek it's eongelo, eo means good, and angelo means message or news, um, when, then it was, it, it, was, it was good news that changed everything. And I actually have an example. If you go way back to, I think, about 490 BC, there's the Battle of Marathon between Persia and, and, and Greece. And in particular, the Athenians are fighting this one. Um, for some reason, the Spartans sat it out, which makes it more dicey because the Spartans were known as the military powerhouse of the Greek Confederation. Uh, who knows? Somebody may have gotten mad at somebody, but anyway, the Greeks are going. The, the Athenians are going it alone, and the battlefield is at Marathon, and so you've got the uh, the Persians going after the Athenians, and meanwhile, back in Athens, their future is unknown. Um, probably house odds would be that they would lose, and then a whole lot of them would be killed, and whoever is left alive would become slaves of the Persians. Um, and then ultimately, most likely, the Persians would roll over all of Greece, and, and that would be the end of Greece. So that would be the, the likely future for the Athenians. Um, well, something funny happens, and so they send a messenger from Marathon to run the 26-odd miles from there to Greece. And as legend has it, he winds up in the town square. He's exhausted himself. He's having a heart attack. And his last two dying words are, We won! And then in a moment, the future of the Athenians is changed from likely being the slaves of the Persians with many people killed to remaining free as Greeks. And and so there we can see that that was very public, good news that changed everything. Um, No, again, unfortunately, it also is used by whoever is in charge, especially in the Roman Empire, to mean anything Caesar announces. So Caesar would send messengers into the town square and say, good news, we're raising your taxes. And everybody would give a half-hearted, yay, we think. Um, Or good news, there's a birth in the royal family. Or good news, there's a victory. You know, our enemies have been defeated. And, And they would actually have a formal statement. They would say, look, I bring you good news of great joy. On this day, the royal family announces the birth of so and so. Or on this day, victory has been achieved among the Gauls or, or, or the Vandals or whatever. Which sounds very familiar to uh, oh, it to, should. to readers of the New Testament. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe we'll probably get into that a little oh, bit absolutely. later. But. And by the way, just a movie trailer, that's intentional. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, that's, that's what good news meant in a secular way. So, uh, would, would people have been more aware or more 
that that'd be a term that people would use more often. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess now that we're, we started this conversation, we use the word gospel in our daily language to just mm-hmm. tell people like, hey, I've got some good news. Maybe even say, I've got good news and bad news. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just not directly using the word gospel. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. it's a, it's a, uh, so we do basically use those terms. Mm-hmm. When, um, when it first starts, where does it first start in the Old Testament? Uh, like, where do great. we first see mm-hmm. there's good news coming? Mm-hmm. And I want to I just go back to the word gospel mm-hmm. for just a second, then we're okay. going to get back there. Um, so we use the phrase good news all the time, and it means roughly, um, it, it doesn't always mean good news for lots of people. It can, but we can also talk about it personally. The word gospel in English, modern English, means something entirely different. People will say, well, that's the gospel truth. Mm-hmm. Or they'll say something and say, and that's the gospel. And usually what they mean is that's the truth, and you can either depend upon it or it's coming from an authority and you better believe it. So it has more of an angle of truth, you know, than it, it than what kind of news that you might be hearing. And that's going to show up in some spots. And we'll talk about that later. So Old Testament times. Um now, if I were to summarize the words good news, um, and it literally means when God forgives Israel of its rebellion. So this phrase sort of originates during the exile when God's people are in the Babylonian Empire. They've been uh, deported off their own land. The temple's been destroyed. Uh, the royal family's been killed. Um, and, and, and now they're subjects of the Babylonians. And this would also be true later because they continue to be subjects of the Persians and then subjects of the Macedonians. And, and and then there's a brief time when they're free, and then they become subjects of the Romans. So all this time, God's people are enslaved like they were in Egypt. And the prophets promise that one day there will be a final exodus from whatever version of Egypt is enslaving them. Um, the other thing is the prophets also speak the blunt truth that they're in this mess because of, of their rebellion against God. So God has basically allowed them the consequences of their mess. And, and so, um, and, and that's the, the and, and what have they done? They've rebelled. Mm-hmm. And so the, the consequences of going it alone in rebellion are you wind up being under the Babylonians or whatever empire is, is got its boot heel on you at, at any given time. Um, and so, um, people are longing for, you know, freedom from, from this oppression. And again, the prophet said, you're this way because you rebelled. And, and then they say, turn back to God and trust him. That's the issue. You have a trust problem. Trust him even in Babylon because there's good news coming. One day God will forgive you of your rebellion, he will set you free, and instead of the emperor of Babylon running you, God will become your king, restore you back, give you back land, restore you back to your mission, and then eventually you'll be blessing to the whole nations like you're supposed to be, and all nations will become the people of God. So, a quick question here that I may, mm-hmm. maybe I'm hearing this right or wrong, Um you're saying they're they're saying there's this good news that God's going to restore Israel mm-hmm. and lead them out of slavery, right? So obey Him. So the good news is not you need to obey God. No, you need to follow Him. The good news is almost like, hey, for mm-hmm. maybe a bad analogy, but hey, jump on the bandwagon now before he it fully comes. 
to mm-hmm. his, his kingdom fully comes. Mm-hmm. It's not saying you can receive the good news if you just obey now. No, this is not an invitation to a contract. The good news is not a contract. Um, the good news is also not a set of commands in order to get a goodie. Um, the good news is the announcement of something happening with or without you, and then it's an invitation to become part of it. So another way of putting it is God is on the move. He has forgiven you of your rebellion. He is moving to set you free. He will do this, even if it doesn't look like it. You can trust him that he will do it, which means his good news can be yours right now, even if it's not fully realized. And so that was the invitation of the prophets, is trust the one bringing freedom. I mean, the same thing had to be true of the Egyptians. Is some, is some of the Hebrews did not trust God. The Bible doesn't record it, but it's conceivable. Some said, heck, we're going to stay in Egypt. Likewise, some non-Hebrews, some Egyptians said, you know, we have seen what, this, what the Israelites' God can do. We are going to follow this God because he seems to be a better leader than the Egyptian gods. And, and, and so the issue is really who you're going to trust, as they say in Ghostbusters. And, and so this good news is an announcement of someone and then an invitation to trust that this someone, you know, um, can fulfill the goods, you know, and, and is a better leader than whatever you're, you're dealing with right now. So is it in the exile when, or, or in the Exodus story, when we start first hearing of the good news to come in Jesus, not not mm-hmm. obviously by name, but mm-hmm. but a, a, f- a future good news rather than a hey, we're going to lead you out of Egypt here and now. That good news mm-hmm. does that make sense? It makes total sense. the The exodus out of the Egypt is the beginning of something, not the end of something. In other words, they're um, you know they're oppressed. Uh, in Egypt, uh, the Egyptian king has decided to exterminate them through hard labor, um, and they cry out, and God hears his people, raises up for them a rescuer, Moses, uh, and then through Moses works his mighty power, and the very f- beginning of the good news is they are freed from Egypt. But then the question is, now what? Free? Okay, you've been freed from Egypt, what are you freed for? And then this is this process where he wants to reform them as his covenant people, as he promised Abraham and Sarah. He wants to give them the land he promised, and then he has a mission he's promised to give them that all the nations would eventually um, be blessed by them, and then everything would be restored as it was at creation. So the, the big promise is, I want to put this place back together. It's been a mess for a long time. And not just, uh, it's been a mess with you, my people, but through my people, I want to restore the mess of of humanity, and I want to restore the broken creation that humanity has broken. And that's all wrapped up in the Exodus story. The Exodus story is, is getting the restoration project back on track, and that project was actually promised in Genesis 3. So good news actually starts in Genesis 3. And then it's, it's picked up again. Uh, you know, it, it is a high point with uh, with God showing up to Abraham and Sarah. It's picked up again with Joseph. It's picked up again when the people move to Egypt and avoid the famine. And initially, because Pharaoh um, blesses the people of, of 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 God, that the empire of Egypt is blessed, and so they experience a taste of the restoration. 
Unfortunately, the, the Pharaoh at the time of Moses decides he's not down with it. So they experience what it's like to get discreated. So would you say is the the first proclamation of the good news, mm-hmm. you said Genesis 3, that's, that's mm-hmm. where God says, um, he talks about the, he will come and crush the head of the serpent mm-hmm. and he will uh, strike his heel, right? There, there's mm-hmm. kind of that weird back and forth that is, uh, I guess, understood as the first saying, hey, this guy, Jesus, is going to come in, in a very... It, it's a very vague thing. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what the text says is, is uh, one of your descendants will crush the snake, but on the way through, his heel will be wounded. Mm-hmm. And in other words, the snake's going to bite him. And so is that the first sign of good news then is that is that what yeah, you're saying in that's other the, words that's where it begins human rebellion doesn't get the last word it's right after the fall yeah and evil doesn't yeah. get the last word because god you know as one author put it a strange wounded warrior will resolve this mess mm-hmm. now you 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 don't have data that would say oh that's going to be jesus of nazareth in so many thousands of years from right now. you know um but they have a promise god will do something somehow and and then there's this strange warrior who, who's going to do it. Okay, so then we move on a little bit further, because mm-hmm. when I think of the, I wouldn't have never, I would have had, wouldn't have ever thought of Genesis 3 as, beginning the, as the beginning of the good news. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have thought of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Um, what does Isaiah do to the message of the gospel? Like, mm-hmm. is, is, is he kind of a, almost a springboard of like really, making this a prominent message, um, or is there somewhere somewhere before that? Well, if we do highlights of good news, uh, another good news is when God shows up to Abraham and Sarah, says, come follow me. I, I've got, uh, you know, I've got some land for you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And here's where it's cosmic. Uh, I will bless you as a nation, but then all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through you. Um, and so at that point, we get the announcement of, of that God is restoring things. In other words, and, and again, it's, a, it's almost like a re-announcement. And then it keeps getting announced. It's announced also to Jacob, almost verbatim. Um, and it's not directly announced to, um, to Joseph, but he does say to his brothers, you did this for evil, but God has meant this for good and the saving of many lives. So we have sort of like a mini gospel or a local gospel for, 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 the, for the, uh, the Jacob clan. That's that, that Joseph says. But then, um, as, the, as, as God begins to free his people from Egypt, he says, so that all may know that I am Yahweh. So once again, God's not doing this because he's mad at Egypt, but he's trying to say, I am the one who can put this back together. You, you know, trust me. And again, it, it appears many Egyptians do, and then go with the people out of the land. Um, and then all the way through, God does what I would call good news things like the separating of the waters. Um, so they go through them and, and, and then go into the wilderness, then feeding with manna. I mean, on and on and on and on and on. There's all these places where God demonstrates that he is good news. So, you know, not only is he promising a story, but he's the embodiment of the story. And, and, and now the gospel writers know this and will work it like crazy. So let's fast forward. There are many other good news points, but um, we are now at a place where Israel itself has become bad news, which is interesting because Israel is supposed to embody the good news. 
And, and Hosea says, you know, um, that the nations blush at your behavior. You scandalize the pagans. So much for a light to the nation, you're a black hole to the nations. Oops. Mm. You know, and so at that point, God says, if you're willing to start undoing everything that I'm trying to do with you, you know, we think of the corruption and the violence and the oppression of the powerful against the powerless inside God's people, then he says, well, then I'm just going to let things continue to fall apart because you seem to be wanting to run the seven days backwards and, and go head, heading back to chaos. So, you want chaos? You'll get chaos. And of course, the northern, um, the northern kingdom of Israel, then is the Assyrians take them over, and the southern kingdom of Judah is taken over by the Babylonians. In both cases, the nations are deeply destabilized and chaotic because of the corruption of their governments and their culture. Uh, and so they're easy pickings for whatever empire just happens to be hungry. Um, so God really doesn't even lift a finger other than he allows them the consequences of their actions. Okay, so that's where we are at the time of Isaiah and at the time of other prophets. Now, Isaiah, um, the book is written everywhere from before the exile to, uh, to after the exile. And so, in a lot of ways, you might say the word Isaiah is shorthand for a group of inspired prophets that God inspired to write his word. So, we talk about 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah, and some people even talk about 3rd Isaiah. Won't worry about this argument. It's all God's word, so he's the author. But what they do is they bring the language of the good news in Genesis in Genesis, you know, three, and then Genesis twelve, and then once again the the good news of the Exodus, and on and on, and even the good news of receiving the land. All that is then brought together, and I've just got a few things here. So one of them is when Isaiah, um, this is Isaiah forty. He says, "You who bring good news to Zion." Go up to a high mountain, you who bring good news to Jerusalem. Lift up your voice and shout. Lift up your voice and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him. And it continues, and then talks about he'll be like a shepherd. He'll tend his flock. He'll gather the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart. And so the very first piece of good news is here's your God. And so this reinforces that when God shows up, there's good news. Um, and, and, and even, you know, I would even say the exile, and, and you see a little bit of this in the prophets, is the exile is actually the beginning of good news for Israel, because God will not allow Israel to destroy itself. Hmm. That's interesting. That's yeah. not how, how most people would, I guess, consider like difficult situations like that. Well, it's, 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 uh, again, I want to be careful. Suffering in itself is not good news, nor is death. In fact, mm -hmm. ultimately, when God's good news is completed, suffering is gone and death is gone. So we have to be very careful. But self-inflicted wounds will also not happen anymore. Mm -hmm. And so um, the exile was a self-inflicted wound. And what God says is, I'm not going to let you disappear among the Babylonians. You are still a people of my own precious possession. And we know that as we read the story of Israel in exile, they finally start living into their mission. Strangely enough, you see them becoming a light to the nations, in this case, particularly Babylon. 
Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all have profound influence upon the Babylonian Empire. Daniel continues to have it into the Persian Empire. Think of Esther and Mordecai. I mean, like Joseph, Esther becomes queen. Mordecai becomes prime minister. You know, so the Joseph story gets keep, gets replayed, where here's this lowly Hebrew who influences the course of the Egyptian empire with Joseph. Here are these captured people in Babylon who are influencing the course of that empire, and then the Persian empire. They never did that before. So it turns out God can take a people who think that their, their time is done, and in retrospect, we discover their time is only beginning. That's the Abraham and Sarah paradigm, you know. Right before Abraham and Sarah, there's all these people who want to make a name for themselves in a city. So they take the resources of this great city, build a honking huge tower, stick a temple on the top of it, and try to talk a god into dwelling in it. Meanwhile, right under their noses in the next story, God doesn't meet them up at the top of the temple, but rather comes down all the way to the ground to two obscure people who have no future because they can't have children. And so they're living a dead-ended life as far as everybody thinks, and then God gives them a future. Hence, the exile people are living a dead-ended life where they would just disappear into the empire and they'd be forgotten. And Isaiah says, nope. Just like Abraham and Sarah, you guys have a future even though you don't know it. And God is already working your future, but there's more. And the good news is God is going to show up, and one day he will be your king, and he will not be like the kings of Babylon and Assyria. And so the good news is, here is your God, and one day he will tend his flock like a shepherd. Um, We see it again, Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim rescue, who say to Zion, your God reigns, your God's in charge. And because he reigns, that's good news for you because no other emperor gets the last word. Our God gets the last word, and his last word is restoration. He goes into more detail, Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, to, or the Lord has chosen me to proclaim good news. Who first to? The poor, the nobodies. And the poor is a technical term. It means those who, who don't have resources. It certainly means that. But it also means all those that society regards as the losers and the rejects, including the people who are responsible for their own messes. So it, it, it means all the people that proper people don't want to be around. And God heads first to them and gives them good news, and then to the brokenhearted, and then he proclaims freedom for the captives. Here, the Exodus theme, which has now become the exile theme. Freedom to the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners. That's a big cosmic one, because darkness is what was everywhere in Genesis 1 before God spoke. And now God is speaking to the prisoners and says, I am going to give you light in the darkness like I did for the whole world at the beginning of creation. And then the year of the Lord's favor, which, by the way, by this time is a prophetic term for when this happens. And then vengeance of our God, which means restorative justice. Vengeance has a different meaning in the Old Testament than we think. Comfort for all who mourn. And just goes on and on and on to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, you know, and, and, and on and the garment of praise instead of despair. So this is a hope chapter. And even Nahum, we don't have to read that one, but even another prophet talks the same way, talks about the feet of one who brings good news and proclaims peace. 
But do you think this is difficult for uh, specific? I mean, modern, uh, you know, in Americans to understand because of this king language, because we don't yep. we don't have yep. a king in our country, mm-hmm. and our leader president is the people choose them mm-hmm. rather, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and, yeah. and this, as, I, as I'm listening to you, this is a, this is a, a king who is, who is not elected. Mm-hmm. It's not chosen by the people, but instead mm-hmm. the king is choosing them. Yes. It's a, it's a, it's a reversal, mm-hmm. but also our elected officials are temporary. Mm-hmm. Um, is it hard for, do you think it's hard for them us to really grasp this in I, our political mm-hmm, world. Yeah. I would say it would be also hard for um, Old Testament Jews and also Jews around the time of Jesus to grasp this as well, because for many of them by now, their experience of a good king is long gone. Okay. And, and if you look at the history of Israel, there's, there are no good kings in the northern kingdom. And the whole track record of the southern kingdom is iffy. And the last two or three kings are, are, are just a dumpster fire. Um, and, and so, in fact, the last official king was really a puppet king placed there by the Babylonians. He rebels, and he's dumped, and then they replace it with Babylonian direct rule under a governor. And then he's assassinated. And, and, and then at that point, the Babylonians just nuke the whole place. Um, so... If they're going to anchor a, a, a king, they would go back to David. And they're fully aware of the historical David was a mess, but there's also this, this, the, 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 the David of poetry. Okay. And the David of the Psalms. And this is the good and just king who looks out for the weak and the powerless. And this king's job is to establish justice and peace. And what that guarantees is the flourishing of all the king's subjects. Um, so that they experience wholeness, um, they experience life, um, they experience fruitfulness, um, you know, and, and, and they experience joy from each other and from the land. So the king's job, if God appoints the king, is to reflect God's character. Mm-hmm. So any positive imagination of the king for an Israelite would have been anchored in God Himself. Um, but they, yeah, their life experiences most kings biff it and are only into themselves. Um, and that would have definitely been the experience of people in exile. Um, so they longed for a king who reflected God's character. Yeah. But yeah, no. Um, and so in the same way, I would say the problem for us is that. Not only do we have bad memory of kings who aren't elected, but we don't, in recent history, have good memory of, of elected officials. Right now, in the culture, most people would say they do not trust their elected officials. So, we don't have a good imagination for a good leader. Okay. And so, it's a bigger problem of whether the king's elected or not. It's, it's, it's just anybody leading anything right now is regarded as either incompetent, corrupt, or all of the above. Right. Okay. Um, okay. So, do you feel like we've kind of covered the Old Testament portion of it? Maybe we move yeah. on to the New Testament. Yeah. And I, I feel like maybe not most Christians, but m- many, if asked what the good news is, what's mm-hmm. the gospel, mm-hmm. in my experience, start at, well, Jesus died for our sins. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is is obviously part of it. Yep. But would not be relevant to the Old Testament because they haven't had that yet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when Jesus shows up, he came to pro- proclaim this good news of mm-hmm. God's kingdom. Yep. What is the good news in the gospel mm-hmm. before we get to the end of the book, right? Right, right. And this is important. Now, where did we get Jesus died for our sins? Um, Paul actually at one spot concentrates the gospel into that one phrase where he says, this is what was handed to me, that Christ died for our sins. Mm-hmm. It's not the only thing he says, though. Paul also said that the gospel or the good news is the power of God unto salvation. Um, what we do is we take those pieces and we don't piece them together, so we're getting bits and pieces of what Paul thinks about the gospel, and we say, well, that's it. And depending on what preacher hammered that and how famous he was, then that phrase winds up going everywhere. So it may be that that was Spurgeon's favorite phrase or Dwight L. Moody's favorite phrase. So it gets then broadcast, then it becomes every pastor's favorite phrase. Um, you know, we get that with commercials where a phrase sticks, and then, or now in social media where something is, where a phrase comes up, you know, and, and then everybody says it. Um, so it's not an untrue phrase, as you say, it's just not the whole piece. And, and Paul would agree with you. Um, so how does it function? Well, once again, the first century Jews who were following Jesus, if you said, what's good news? They would say, well, when God becomes king. Um, so they would say the same thing Isaiah is saying. And, you know, then if you said, could you unpack that for us? Then they would start talking about Jesus. So that's, let's go back to, you know, the title of the four stories of Jesus is the gospel. Well, if the people who wrote those stories would have had Isaiah's definition of gospel in their heads. You know, how beautiful are the, are the feet of those who bring good news announcing your God reigns or God has become king. So the story is about how Jesus became king. And, and, and the story is about Jesus' kingdom. Uh, remember I talked about how, you know, we, we get uh, the first announcement of gospel is in Genesis 3, and then we get another announcement in Genesis 12, and then we, we get the another announcement in Exodus 2, and then once the people are let out, and well, even during um, the freeing of God's people, then, gospel so, then God sort of does gospel things. He does acts of freedom. So, then gospel is not only the story about God becoming king, but, God, but then gospel is also embodied in what that king does. So, to Jesus, um, it's interesting that in Mark 1, it says the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, and then it goes right back to Isaiah. So, it's deliberately, Mark is deliberately locking in the phrase good news within the tradition of how Isaiah uses it, where he says, as it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you and you will prepare the way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make a space strat, path straight. And, and those all, um, in their context, are, are actually military phrases, because you prepare the way for the king when the king has won the battle and comes back to the city that's now going to live in freedom. And, and that's the, you're straightening the road out. Um, and what will happen is the messenger will come first and say, we won, you know, prepare the road outside town for the king and the army as we celebrate victory. And so then the people would run out there, 
you know, and start cleaning things up, shovel all the horse and donkey poop, you know, flatten the road out, regrade it, you know, make sure that there's no obstacles. Um, and then they would see the king and the army coming back, and they would go out and meet him halfway. Lots of high fives and hugs, rejoicing. Then they would accompany the king and the army back on into the city. And so that's what's being said, is this is the good news about someone who's who has conquered something big. So let's get the road ready for the victory march. And see, that's already literally anticipating the story of Jesus. So Jesus then comes in, and, and he himself then um, begins to proclaim. I love this. Later on in Mark, Jesus himself says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, or in, in Greek, rethink everything and turn around and believe this good news. So Jesus is announcing victory. He's announcing that somebody has become king. We'll discover later as we read the Gospels that Jesus says he is that king. And then he starts doing gospel things. He heals people. He restores people. He forgives people. Those are all where he's embodying the good news he's bringing. And that's the first place we discover Jesus is the king of this kingdom he's announcing. And so the gospel is the story of Jesus his announcement of the kingdom, and then also his, his kingdom actions. And it's also shorthand for Jesus himself, who turns out to be good news, just as himself, and then he does good news. And then strangely enough, his own strange suffering and death, which by all conventional reckoning should not have happened, gets turned out to be a push towards the most radical good news that not only is he the king of, of this little group of, of people in Judah, but he turns out to be the king over death, over sin, and becomes the king of the whole world. And so then at that point, the people start using a new word for king, and it's Lord, which is shorthand in the Old Testament for Yahweh. So he turns out to be a king who is, a, who is God, and God overall. So that's another way of saying the gospel is the announcement that God has become king. I know that's like a fire hydrant. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Well, as, as you were speaking, I, I was thinking of um, the scene where Jesus is in the synagogue and he, mm-hmm. he reads from Isaiah. Yeah. He rolls it up and he says, today this has been fulfilled. Like, mm-hmm. he, he says the the good news portion of Isaiah, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the beginning of everything. Mm-hmm. And so when when the gospels talk about Jesus proclaiming good news, um that's kind of the message he's proclaiming. Yeah. Good good news for the poor, to set the prisoners free, to give sight to the blind, you know, and, and you see all the components later of what then Jesus proceeds to do, including raising someone from the dead. Actually raises, I think, three people from the dead, if I'm not correct. Um and, and, and the prophets also did similar things to announce the good news. In other words, you know, this resurrection I just did of this kid, this is what's going to happen to all of us. And God's going to resurrect our people. And here God is, Jesus saying, I'm doing the same thing, but it's way bigger than what Isaiah announced. Isaiah had no clue how big this good news is. And it is interesting. Um, so Jesus announces all this in the, in the synagogue, right? Mm-hmm. And there's two reactions that happen. They're, they're, they're strong reactions. One you find with the poor and the broken. And for them, they just run to him. 
you know. And the other you find with the proper religious people, and they are enraged. And, and that is, is all the way through the book. Those, those, those are the two main reactions. There are a few people who seem to be apathetic, but most of the time, Jesus' very being provokes a decision about him. You know, in other words, no one ever goes, oh, that's nice, have some hot dish. You know, they either just say, oh my goodness, this is the greatest news I've ever heard. I'm going to stick with this guy like glue. You know, and then the other people are like, this is the most horrifying thing I've ever heard. This guy, if he keeps up, is going to bring the Romans down on our heads. Not only that, he's a fraud and a blasphemer. Someone needs to end him. Mm-hmm. And those are the, you know, and, and, and indeed, those two reactions come to a head. Yeah. So earlier we talked a little bit about um, this almost like template that mm-hmm. the the Romans had to, as far as bringing good news, yeah. mm-hmm. and how that's used in the New Testament to proclaim. Oh, yeah. This this is even before Jesus is born, correct? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's proclaiming Jesus, his birth, mm-hmm. and the good news that's coming. So oh, can yeah. you can you get into that a little? Oh bit? yeah, and the manner it's proclaimed is is amazing. Okay, a couple more things about our good friend Caesar. Um, the Caesar at the time had himself proclaimed son of God, Lord, and Savior. And about the time of Jesus, they're starting to build temples to the Holy Family. And they don't mean Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. They mean the royal imperial family. And, they're, and, they, and they also have, like in Ephesus, a holy day once a year to worship the Holy Family. And this is very awkward for the Jews because they don't, and the Romans are cranky, and, and later the Christians. Um, but this is the background. So, if you've got a Caesar who's referring to himself as Savior and Lord and, and, and Son of God, um, and you, you've, you know, got him whatever he pronounces is good news, so now we get the shepherds. And the shepherds would belong to the category of the poor. Remember how we talked? That's a bigger category than just economic. They're outcasts. They're nobodies. They're dangerous. And here comes a divine messenger um, and scares the heck out of them. You know, I, I, I saw a spoof of that where there's this big muscle-bound dude with, with wings and goes, yeah, I get that. Um, and, um, but whatever it was, was terrifying. And, and so the guy says, don't be afraid. And, 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 and then this divine being, which we call an angel, says, for look, I bring you good news of great joy. That's exactly how it was phrased in the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. You know, so already he's parodying um, Caesar. He's making, he's mocking Caesar. Caesar is just a fraud compared to the real thing. Mm-hmm. And then he says, "Unto you this day is born." And then he uses Roman imperial language and also Jewish language. I mean, he, he's sort of doing a twofer. He says, "The Savior, a Messiah." Of course, Caesar didn't call himself Messiah who is the Lord. And, and so we have, we have an announcement that, that the Lord is born. You know, so he, literally the angel is issuing a proclamation about the baby Jesus using Roman imperial language. And that's another way of saying uh, there's a new Caesar in town and he's not in Rome. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we can overestimate the shock someone would have heard. Forget the angel, but just that someone would dare to say that. 
you know, everybody would keep their distance because they're waiting for Romans, you know, the Romans to show up and just run a spear through them, or most likely crucify them to show this is what happens when you take on Caesar, which is ironic because that is what happened when Jesus took on Caesar. Mm-hmm. So, but what the angel does is he is, if he were a Roman citizen, he, he could easily be accused of treason and rebellion. But it's a divine messenger, and then he brings with him the whole heavenly host, which is a military term. So we've got the, the, the army of God, the supernatural army of God, singing praises to God, surrounding this announcement that there's a new emperor who's showing up, and he turns out to be the emperor of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's all packed into there. So the good news is God has come to set up his kingdom, and it supersedes all other kingdoms. And it gets announced to the nobodies first. And then it gets shocking. And you want to see where this emperor is, this king who turns, you know, and there's overtones of who's a divine king. Um, and again, they're hints, but they're there. Um, well, you will find him wrapped in poor people's clothes, lying in a freaking feed trough in someone's garage. Now, that's just as jolting mm-hmm. because emperors don't get born in, in garages, they get born in palaces. And this is already a really strange king, it's a bizarre king. Um, and then who, who, who is his court? Who, who do the shepherds find there? Two scared teenagers. Mm. You know, that's, I mean, the, the irony of things is amazing. Like, how's this little kid with, you know, who's born in poverty going to take on the almighty Caesar? Mm-hmm. Good luck with that one. You know, and, and so, you know, you, you see Luke just setting up just dripping irony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we've got all this uh, good news language coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is, as we get into Jesus uh-huh. and his ministry, mm-hmm. you receive this good news, thinking as an as his audience. Mm-hmm. Now what? Like um, what? What? What is this? Like you were saying earlier, mm-hmm. the good news is for something. Yeah, yeah. it's. It, and and what is that good news meant to be for? Like, what is, mm-hmm. what is, what are we, what is being joined into? Oh, this at, at, through yeah. Jesus' message. Mm-hmm. So we go back to Isaiah again. Um, so the promise is that God will set them free from their oppression. We'll just generalize it a little mm-hmm. bit. And then he will recreate the kingdom that he designed them to be. He will be their God. And then he uses nurturing language to describe what kind of king he is. Um, and, and Jesus reinforces that by washing feet. You know, so, so Jesus and, and Yahweh. In the Old Testament, we see this as well as a strange king. Um, because we discover we're made in the king's image. And what does it mean to rule and subdue in the king's image? Well, the three words in Genesis 2 are serve, watch over, and care for. That's one word in Hebrew. And have each other's back. So we discover that Yahweh, the king of Israel, reigns as king by serving, by watching over and caring for, and having and, and having the back of his people. And that's repeated throughout the Psalms. Strange king, right? Mm-hmm. Well, then Jesus reinforces and says, I am indeed that strange king. And the way he does it, is he proclaims he has a kingdom. And then he starts gathering all the nobodies. And he gives life to them. Watch how he interacts with them. And it doesn't mean he doesn't tell them the truth. He, he's often telling them hard truths. But I love that there's a, a guy who works with, with um, people that are often regarded as social outcasts. 
And he makes a statement. He says, when the woman at the well or, or any other person met with Jesus, they didn't leave and go commit suicide. As, as, as often happens when, when, when people on the edges of culture encounter a church these days. Mm. You know, and instead, they came to life. Mm-hmm. And then they went and invited their friends. Mm-hmm. You know, M- Matthew, a tax collector, a, a traitor, a collaborator with the Romans, corrupt as the day is long, runs into Jesus, and instead of feeling shamed and guilty like every other rabbi would have done to him, he comes to life. And then he goes and invites all his friends to have a party with Jesus. That's an interesting reaction to a rabbi. And so we begin to get a, a sense of the kingdom through the, through the story of Jesus with the people that follow him. And so the good news is this guy seems to put me back together. He's the first person who's ever taken me seriously, respected me, and cared for me. And he's teaching me how to do that myself with others. And we're living a way better life than we've ever lived before. And, and, and then there's a hint that it's bigger than just we're all getting nice to each other because Jesus does these things nobody else can do. You know, everything from multiplying bread, which, gee, looks an awful lot like what happened in the exile. So, I mean, you know, in the wilderness wanderings, where, where God's newly freed people, we're learning how to live in freedom. So, apparently, Jesus is repeating. He's teaching us how to live in freedom and teaching us how to trust him because just like God produced manna, here he produces bread. So, you know, he's, he's, Jesus is almost retelling the stories of the Exodus in his own actions. And so, he's collecting this thing, and he calls it the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. He's telling them it'll even go beyond death. And so, this is what they're signing up for, this brand new life. In, in John, he refers to it as, as, as being born again. In other words, you're being reborn out of your, your, your self-destructive misery and the misery other people are putting on you into a life that will, that will even defeat death that starts right now. And then he strangely enough calls this heaven, which is a very different way of talking about heaven than we think of heaven. We think of heaven as just what happens after you die. Jesus says, no, it's right here. Uh, just a little phrase is contemporary Christianity seeks on the big question is how do I get to heaven? The big question of of of, of Jesus is how do we get heaven into you? Mm. Jesus came to get to get heaven into you, yeah, rather than to get you into heaven. So you you paint this picture of like the 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 good news being good yeah, for the yeah. people who heard it, uh-huh. um, but at the same time, not everyone who heard it experience the goodness of the news just like you mm-hmm, were saying when mm-hmm. when he reads from Isaiah in the synagogue mm-hmm. there were two reactions yeah yeah um, and so yes this good news is good but what mm-hmm. makes this good news not good for people you know is that oh, a, yeah. does that make sense that's it makes perfect sense well let's take a look at the three kinds of good news beyond the good news of Jesus um, there are three reactions by the people of Judah to the Romans. And each one of them is a kind of, uh, of striving for a, a good news to happen. One is just a very pragmatic good news, and this is by the, the, the temple priests who are called the Sadducees. And that is, if we keep our heads down and make the Romans happy, then we will survive. And that was their good news. We can survive. If we do these things and keep the Romans calm, then we can survive. Kind of like apathetic almost, or... Or just kind of go along to get along. Yeah. Yeah. There's a sense of let's get practical about things. You know, it's great that we worship God, but we got to take care of ourselves. Yeah. Okay. So it's almost like a practical atheism. Okay. And and they even changed the theology of Judaism to accommodate the Romans. 
So you can see that their real God is Caesar. They don't like him, but but they know he's the one who calls the shots. That's who they're obeying. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, then the next group, um, they would be what I'd call duck and cover. Um, and they basically believe if we withdraw from society in one way or another, um, then we will be saved when God ultimately comes. And so they work very hard on being pure. Uh, the major group who does this is what we call the Pharisees. And they initially started out as a revival movement, but by this time they're a purity project. And, and they believe if we are pure enough, we will be rescued from this mess. Um, and an extreme version of that is what they call the Essene community that was at Qumran, where archaeologists discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they, they got out into the desert and said, yeah, God's going to just nuke it out, and then he's going to restart with us. So, and then, and then the third one were the people who believed that God was going to literally foment a violent political revolution. These are called the Zealots. And, and actually, Paul was a Zealot before Jesus ran into him. And they had no problem taking up arms to help God bring his kingdom in. And so they were constantly taking out a Roman soldier or two here or there. The problem was, then the Romans would retaliate by taking out a whole town. Um, you know, you kill one of ours, then we, we wipe out, you know, a hundred of yours. And, and, of course, this would really annoy all the Jews who, who were caught in the collateral of the Zealots, you know, little revolution. Um, so, you know, so the Zealots' salvation is revolution, um, the Pharisee salvation is when God just comes and, s- and somehow supernaturally nukes the place. And they weren't close to it being a revolution. They just felt that the human response was not to take up arms, but to, to get away from it all. Hmm. And then, of course, the, the Sadducees had this delicate dance with the Romans just to keep everybody happy. So in comes Jesus. And the minute he announces the kingdom of God, the Sadducees are nervous. They do not care, but because they're announcing there's another king, and already that's treason. So the Sadducees just object to anybody claiming to be the Messiah because in their minds, there is no such thing anymore. We all know there's n- a Messiah is never really going to show up. Mm. Um, it, they may have still believed it doctrinally, but in practical everyday living, anybody who claims to be a Messiah, you had better be bulletproof. And we're not going to follow you until you've been demonstrated to be bulletproof. The second one was then the Pharisees were massively offended because Jesus did not look pure. I mean, his pedigree was lousy, born by, you know, in a barn by poor kids. Um, and, and the rumors around that, that the mother was not even married, you know. And then, so already Jesus' birth in scandal, he, he clearly he's not clean like us. He's not pure. You know, second, um, you know, look who he associates with. You know, every, every one of these people makes him automatically unclean. Uh, how, how does, what kind of Messiah is that? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and also he doesn't recognize us. He's not coming to us because we know best. Yeah. So that's just plain jealousy. And then the zealots, uh, you know, they initially took a look at him, but then they got disillusioned because he wouldn't take up arms. Yeah. So you, you so the three major reactions to what's going on don't Jesus doesn't fit their solution. In fact, for many of them, he's counterproductive to it. So if they allow this guy to go on, you know. Then, then the temple priests say, well, then the Romans will destroy everything. It'll be end of everything. Um, the Pharisees say, well, this guy's a fraud, and, and, and he's just going to lead everybody astray. And, and then God will certainly you know, delay his coming because now he's made everything unclean and he's ruined everything. 
And then the zealots were like, well, he looks good, but he's not getting any action going. So he's irrelevant. Um, except then one zealot, Judas, um, says, well, well, I'll, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to force him, you know, to betray, I'm going to betray his hand and, and force his hand to see if he actually does something, you know. So those are the reactions. Um, yeah. So it, it sounds like to me that for the people that it's actually good news for, mm-hmm. actually make, uh, Jesus, their king, mm-hmm. whereas some may say that he's their king in words not mm-hmm. truly f- mm-hmm. following him, yeah, and the others want to keep themselves or someone else on the throne. Mm-hmm. Would that be accurate then? To as far as the the yeah. who has who who hears it as good news and who hears it as bad news? Yeah, and and so let's bring it forward to the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, first of all, that that we all need an exodus. That Egypt still exists. In fact, um, the primary word for empire in the Bible is Babylon. Babylon still exists. Egypt was a Babylon, even though the historical Babylon comes afterwards. And so whenever people get together to build community, Babylon starts showing up because everybody's into the power game, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got Babylon or Rome, pick it. um, And everyone also has a Babylon inside of them. Mm. You know, um, Every one of us engages in self-serving behaviors and attitudes that often turn out to be self-defeating, and often others are caught in the collateral damage. Um, We had a graphic and brutal uh, example of this where we had a shooting in one of our local high schools. Um, and, 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 And that's its extreme form, but it's manifest more and more often in our society. So Babylon is rearing its ugly head in these United States of America. Mm And it is breaking individuals and also turning individuals into tyrants. Um, and, and so, you know, if someone says, well, I, I don't believe in sin, well, look around you. Um, you know, whether it's human trafficking or, or mass violence or corruption um, or just frankly the fact that so many people suffer from anxiety and depression. I mean, just pick what you need to be rescued from. Mm-hmm. And the, the big question is, do you trust this strange king to rescue for you from that? Or are you trying other forms of rescue? Some people engage in credit card therapy. Others, you know, try to, to, to create their own, you know, safety net through resources, whether it's money or stuff, or they go, or they try to preserve their health as long as possible to see if they can, you know, you know, hang on. And, you know, others, they do it by how many friends can I collect? Or others, if it gets psychologically broken, become codependent on people and their identity rides on what others think of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Luke, Martin Luther said it this way, your God is whatever you fear, love, and trust. Mm. You know, what, what really functions as your God is whatever you ultimately fear, love, and trust. Okay. That's good. And just think of, of, of all, you know, and your behavior will tell everybody else what your God is. Mm-hmm. You can say what your God is, but mm-hmm. watch how you spend your money, watch how you interact with people, watch what, what affects you emotionally, and you can find out what you, what you fear, love, and trust. Yeah. So as we as we kind of move forward mm-hmm. into, um, let's just go to like the Great Commission. Yeah, yeah. Jesus says, mm-hmm. basically, see, all authority and has mm-hmm. been given to me. Basically, mm-hmm. saying, I am that King yep. of the Good News. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
go make disciples, baptizing mm-hmm. and teaching them mm-hmm. to obey. Mm-hmm. Um, where does, because we were saying earlier, like if people were to respond to what is the gospel today, mm-hmm. a lot of them mm-hmm. might say like that Jesus died for their sins. Mm-hmm. How is that, that just that little statement, mm-hmm. Jesus died for my sins, mm-hmm. included or attached or connected to the gospel we've been talking about mm-hmm. of the kingdom of Jesus mm-hmm. being king. Oh man, <laughs> this may turn out to be another podcast, but okay. we'll, we'll, we'll do the short version. Yeah. Um, so the make disciples things comes from the way Jesus related to his followers was like a rabbi would relate to their followers. And the word for a rabbi's followers were disciples, literally apprentices. So he's saying, go make apprentices. And that means go teach people to imitate me. Because Jesus' kingdom is defined by the character of the king. And, and so, just as um, our first parents in Genesis 1 and 2 were, were, were told, to, you know, told to imitate the king, so then Jesus basically repeats Genesis 1 and 2 and says, go make people in my image. Which is very interesting. So, he's making a claim about being God in that I'm the Genesis 1 king. And just as I told your first parents, go do it again. And, and, and so, be like me and teach people to be like me in my image. Um, and so, make a community of people who practice being like me. And that, create, and, and that practice of practicing being like Jesus is kingdom practice. It's good news practice. It creates a good news community because suddenly the character of God is permeating everybody. And it's not just us all being nice to each other. He's told us that the Spirit will work this in us. And this is maybe where we can kind of draw it together. Paul talks a lot about this, but he uses the language of promise, not the language of demand. So it's not, go try real hard to be like Jesus. And then you will experience heaven. Well, no, people will experience a different kind of hell because nobody can do that. So, how do you fulfill that commandment of make disciples and be one? This is so cool. What you find is a principle all the way through Scripture. Whatever God commands, he also promises. So, Paul frames all of this in the language of promises. He says that God works all circumstances and events and relationships to shape you into the image of Christ. That's Romans 8, 28, and 29, kind of summarized. In, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that God is at work to form you into the image of Christ so that you will be blameless on the day of the Lord when God finally shows up and restores all things. And then he ends it with, and God is faithful to do so. He talks about the same thing in Ephesians 1 in a different way. Um, and then he refers to what this looks like as the fruit of the Spirit of God. In other words, when the Spirit goes to work at you, this is the results. And so, Paul says, this is not not a self-improvement project, but this is, if you, if you trust God, he will change your life. And so, how do you be a disciple? Number one, trust God. And, and, and so, what does it mean that Christ died for our sins? Trust God that he has taken care of the ultimate Egypt and the ultimate Pharaoh, and that is sin, death, and the devil. He beat them in a strange way on the cross, and he comes as your victorious king. Trust him. He's good for it. Trust him that he wants to restore you. 
and take the dare that if you follow him, you will walk into a life that you've never imagined, and it will transcend death. Not even death gets the last word. You will be in a forever friendship with God. You will be the person that God made you to be all along, and then that's someone who looks like him. And you will fulfill the primal call to live in the image of God. And that is, you will, you will serve God, and you will serve each other, and you will serve creation. You will watch out and care for each other and creation, and in a strange way, God, even though he doesn't need it. And you will have each other's backs as the way God has your back. Mm-hmm. And that is the promise of the gospel that Jesus brought and invites us into. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay, so one more um, thought before we kind of wrap things up. You bet. We've kind of progressed all the way through from the beginning, basically mm-hmm. Genesis mm-hmm. Through, yeah. Yeah. through, now we're into kind of Paul and mm-hmm. um, and how the good news, I don't want to say has changed, but mm-hmm. the, the progression of it, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, there's this good news that's coming, the good news has come, mm-hmm. and now we're living in this time where the good news is, is here mm-hmm. and Jesus is on mm-hmm. the throne. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there are other lower G gods on the throne mm-hmm. of this world. Yep. And then Revelation, what does Revelation do to the good news of the the, mm-hmm. the place that we're in now mm-hmm. between good news is coming, mm-hmm. good news has come, mm-hmm. but it's not fully, mm-hmm. it's kind of here, but not fully here. Yeah, yeah. To what is it in Revelation? Um. I'm going to go back to ancient Rome. There was a big, big battle, and there was a time when there were several Caesars contending for the throne, so Rome was a violent mess. And one of the contenders fought a decisive battle and defeated all the other contenders. Um, and then he began to send messengers across the empire saying, well, you know, I've won. I will reestablish the peace of Rome. Uh, I will, I, you know, the chaos has ended. The death has ended. The suffering has ended. Now, that is true. This Caesar was now the true Caesar on the throne, and there were no more Caesars. But it took a while for the messengers to get across the empire and tell people that. Another example is Juneteenth. Um, The Confederacy had been decisively defeated, but in Texas, nobody knew that. And so the Confederacy was acting like it was still in charge, and African Americans were still acting as if they were slaves, because no one had told them they weren't. And so then you get the proclamation on June 19th, um, I think it's the 19th, um, that, that they have been freed. But that was a proclamation that was based on a big ba- battle that had happened beforehand. Hmm. And so then there was the outworkings of that good news. We are in that outworking time. And and there was actually a technical term for this because when Jesus rose from the dead, a lot of other people rose from the dead too. You can see this in the Gospel of Matthew. And that was a surefire sign that Christ was on the throne because the Old Testament said one of the signs that God has taken the throne is, is the resurrection of people. Well, this was confusing because there were a lot of people raised from the dead, including Jesus, but yet Nero was still on the throne. Herod was still on the throne, you know, and okay, what is this? And so people scratched their heads a little while and came up with a term for this seemingly overlap time where Jesus is on the throne, uh, you know, all the big pharaohs have been killed, sin, death, and the devil, and, and we are now able to live differently, and Caesar doesn't get to tell us how to live anymore, nor does Herod. Um, 
And so this overlap time was called these last days. And then Paul explores the fact that there's an overlap in us as well, where Christ is, is on the throne with all of those who trust him. But yet there's a thing called the flesh or the old Adam and Eve who still struggles to stay on the throne. So we have an overlap in us, the old nature and the new nature. We are born again, but yet our old nature, when we were baptized, seems to be really good swimmers. So we, we were buried with Christ into baptism, and, and, and we're still working out what that means and raised him with new life. And, and so our, our lives are a process of getting used to the fact that we're free, and every time we and, and now and then we still act like slaves. Gotcha. That's good. That's a good good uh, analogy or picture that mm-hmm. that that helps me make sense of that. So, um, real quick to kind of wrap things up, why does it matter that we have good news? Well, this is important, and I think part of of us as Christians is helping people see that the good news is good. And this is a hard project because. Again, for many Christians in, in our country, good news means I'll go to heaven when I die, and is seemingly irrelevant for this life. It's, it's just about the afterlife. So one is we have to help people rethink what good news is in the first place. And that's hard, because we have to tell people that good news, while it includes the afterlife, starts now, and, you know, let's, you know wouldn't you like to get out of the hell you're in now? Why, would you, why do you want to wait till you die to make sure you don't go to hell? You're already in hell. You know, which means also we have to help people see that. And like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, people go to great lengths to call hell heaven. You know, in other words, it's good enough, don't mess with it. The other is the church itself has, has really messed things up in, in, in the last few decades. Um, there was a singer, Michael Card, and his dad was a Baptist evangelist. And his dad was fond of saying that the best argument for the cause of Christianity is the local church. And the best argument against the cause of Christianity is the local church. And I recently had a, just a painful conversation with someone who has been so hurt by the church that they've completely rejected the notion of Christianity altogether. They just can't even go near it. And not because it, I mean, it poses intellectual problems for it. It just hurts so bad to even go near the topic. Hmm. You know, which, you know, and, I, and when I heard that, I thought, well, the first thing is back off. You don't need to inflict more pain. But all I could do is pray. Is I got to commit this person to you, Jesus, because humanly speaking, we have 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 become a living. You know, the church is becoming a living hell for this person. You know, and, and as a human, I don't know how to undo that, but I know that God can. Yeah. So what what are the what are the things to do? One is pray for people. You know, pray that that God would break through the pain, break through the illusions, break through all the constructions that people have. To, to tell themselves they're already in paradise when, when we, you know, I think honestly we full know we're not. The other is then also to demonstrate it is this God that's good for it, not some other God. Mm-hmm. This God gives you genuinely good news, and it's the best news in town, and every other pr- claim to good news is just a poor substitute. Mm-hmm. And that, that means we've got to embody that good news, we, that, that we've got to be good news for others. Long before we open our mouths and start talking about the good news of Jesus, they need to encounter us as good news. That's good. I think that's a good place to end. What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah, I think so.
All right. So one last thing before we go, uh, we're going to be doing a Q&R episode. So a question and response episode here in a few weeks. Uh, if you have any questions that you'd like to ask Richard um, on one of the topics, topics that we've discussed so far, please email me directly. Uh, my email is eric.payton at hopewdm.org. That's E-R-I-C dot P-E-Y-T-O-N. Uh, and you can include the subject word with web. That would help me uh uh, organize those. Um, and also, if you have any ideas for a future topic you'd like to be discussed on the show, you can uh, send those in the same way. So we look forward to hearing from you all and, and talking next time. You bet. Looking forward to it. <laughs>